A man feels he knows his way around the law, his way around people, and knows the way to game the system. In fact, this particular man gamed the system so well that it reaped its own disastrous dividends. And another man, well, he just hates the way men look at his partner. It just gets under his skin, making him paranoid, driving him to madness, driving him to, well, to kill. But oh, how there is a twist to this tale. Awesome listeners, your two old-time radio episodes share a theme. Revenge. Sure, for two different reasons, but in their own way, a kind of revenge in itself. Recorded on January the 3rd, 1946, we have Angel of Death. And recorded on July the 25th, 1946, we have Can't We Be Friends? And no, mate, we can't be your friend. Disclaimer. The second tale delves a little into domestic abuse, enough to make me a little uncomfortable at its realism. So please, listen to the second story with caution. Thank you. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and snuggle up for some classic radio tales with a twist. Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live, to your happiness in entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Yes, right now a glass full would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you Mr. Paul Henry in a remarkable tale of Suspense. December 31st, New Year's Eve. I shall identify myself as John Forsyth, my true name, as I have no reason to fear its being known nor to assume one of a different character. My early life has no place in this narrative, save only to point out with the utmost objectivity that I have always been possessed since my tenderest youth of extraordinary intellectual powers. As witness... My acquisition at the age of 16 of degrees from not one, but three of the leading universities of Europe, where, despite my British nativity, I spent my formative years. But this fact has no special significance other than as it applies to those events which were set in motion on another New Year's Eve in London 15 years ago. For it was on that evening, as I had planned some weeks before it should be, that I stood outside a door and listened for confirmation of the relationship I knew existed between my best friend and my wife. Oh, darling, darling, darling. It's all right now, Pam. It's all right. It's all over now. Yes. Are you happy? Yes, now that we've decided. Yes. 
Almost for the first time since I can remember. I know, darling. I suppose we should feel sorry for him, but I can't. Not after the way he's treated you. Raymond, what do you suppose he'll... It doesn't matter, darling. Tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be on the Atlantic Ocean, and within a month we'll be on my uncle's plantation in Brazil where he couldn't find us if he looked for a hundred years. No, I suppose it doesn't really matter. How long will it take you to pack? Oh, an hour. Well, I ought to be back by then. I just got to pick up the tickets and a few things. All right. Hurry, darling. I will, darling. I will. Goodbye. Goodbye, darling. Good evening, my dear. Why? What's the matter, Pamela? You look as though you'd seen a ghost. Oh, why, nothing. You startled me, that's all. You said you were going out of town for the holidays. And you... You don't usually come in by the back door. You needn't be alarmed. I shall only be a moment. I, uh, forgot something. Can I get it for you? Your anxiety for my every wish is, uh, touching. But no, thank you. Uh, by the way, Pamela, have you any last words? Any what? We may not see each other for a while, you know. John, what are you talking about? What's the matter with you? Oh, my dear, sometimes I wonder if I married you out of infatuation for your beauty or pity for your stupidity. Oh, John, please. Uh, Pamela, where do you suppose we shall all be, say, within the month? Does it really matter so much? <laughs> no. No, I suppose it does not. Within the month, I was on trial for their murder. You are Henry Jenkins, proprietor of the Crown and Nile, number 17 Buxton Street. Eh? I'm that one, sir. I am. Henry Jenkins, sole owner Thank of Proprietor Rivers. Now, uh, will you kindly repeat the words spoken by the prisoner in the dock while in your place of business several weeks ago? Yes, sir. <coughs> Excuse me, sir. About uh, two weeks ago one night, uh, Mr. Forsyth there, who's a steady customer of mine, although not what you'd call a sociable man. Yes, 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 yes. Well, sir, all me other customers had gone home. And I was asking Mr. Forsythe to leave also, just so I could close up me shutters, you know. When all of a sudden he looks up at me and he whispers, kind of horse-like, Jenkins, I did it. I finally did it. Not knowing what he did, sir, I naturally ask him what he did. And uh, what did the prisoner tell you, Mr. Jenkins? He said, sir, warning me to keep... Warning me to keep it quiet, sir. I found him together, and I killed him. And then he laughs in a crazy way and added, And Jenkins, I've hid the bodies where no one will ever find them. Well, that's what he said, sir, so help me a tip. I saw him burning what looked to be a lot of bloody clothes. In the furnace it was, and he didn't try to hide them either. Just stared at me kind of odd-like and went right on as brazen as you please, he did. He wasn't worried at all. He said the two of them won't ever get away together, except if they are dead. I heard him say it on the stair landing one night and several other times in their rooms. Pamela, he says, if you don't stop leering at Raymond Tillotson with those evil eyes of yours... I'll see the two of you in your graves. I warn you. 
the uh, court feels uh, that it is its duty at this time again to remind the prisoner that he has so far made, nor allowed to be made by counsel in his defense, no cross-examination of witnesses, nor a buttle to the charges made by the prosecution of any kind. And that this attitude can only result adversely to his cause. The prisoner is therefore once more given the opportunity at this time to make such a rebuttal. Now, does the uh, prisoner wish to do so? No, Your Lordship. I do not. Does the uh, prisoner wish to make any statement of any nature whatsoever in his defense? I should merely like to ask the prosecution one question, Your Lordship. Yes? What is it? Has the prosecution found the bodies? Well, the uh, prisoner wishes to know if the prosecution has yet produced the bodies of the alleged victims of the crime for which he is on trial. Well, uh, <coughs> no, your lordship, we have not. That is all, thank you. To kill them had been my plan and my intention, naturally but not in the usual stupid way such things are done where men gamble their own lives against the lives of those whom they destroy. Every faculty of my intelligence revolted against such a thought. And so for me, the gambler's risk was needless. So I planned it. It was therefore without fear or question that I stood before the court to hear the verdict which, in all the writing of it, I had contrived against myself. Order! Order! John Forsyth, the court has given most careful consideration to the fact that the bodies of the named victims have not been presented to this court as due evidence and assurity of murder, a fact which admittedly must alter the circumstances of guilt. But this Crown Court, no matter how deeply it desires to aid you, cannot but recognize the fact that you have allowed every shred of evidence and element to point to you as a cold-blooded killer. Under such circumstances, questionable though they may be, I can do only as the king's lord directs me to do, tempered with the mercy of his majesty's court. I hereby sentence you to no more than twenty and no less than ten years at hard labor for the suspected and willful murders of your wife, one Pamela Felice Forsyth, and one Raymond Elton Tillotson. And may God protect the crown and the jurisprudence of this court of his royal majesty. Ten to twenty years. <laughs> it was perhaps a bit more than I expected, but uh, I was content. And it may be that there was even the trace of a smile upon my lips as I left the courtroom. Certainly, it was justified, if only by the looks of awe and admiration turned in my direction by the spectators. Clearly, they recognized my genius, and I knew they were thinking of the countless lesser men who had failed in their efforts to hide even one dead body, whereas I, apparently without effort, had successfully hidden two. <laughs> Thank you.
For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you as star Paul Henry in The Angel of Death by Alan Cameron. Roma Wines present tonight, Nation Tonight, in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Truman Bradley for Roma Wines. With the holiday excitement over, most of us are glad to enjoy evenings at home again, taking it easy and economizing. What a perfect time to serve Roma California Sherry. Yes, glorious golden amber Roma Sherry adds so much to happy hours at home, yet costs so very little. More Americans every day make Roma Sherry first call for dinner. You'll find Roma Sherry ideal for entertaining, too. Delicious anytime. For Roma Sherry is a happy, mellow wine with tempting fragrance, satisfying, natural sweetness, and superb nut-like taste. Roma Sherry, like all Roma wine, is a true wine, unvaryingly good always. Crushed from choicest grapes, grown in California's finest vineyards, then unhurriedly guided to tempting perfection by Roma's ancient winemaking skills. Bottle at the winery. Get Roma Sherry tomorrow, now selling at lowest prices in years. Insist on Roma, R-O-M-A, Roma Wine, for uniformly fine quality at low cost. Remember, more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wine. And now Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Paul Henry as John Forsythe in The Angel of Death, a play well calculated to keep you in suspense. It was thus that I began my prison term and my association with William Waters, the sallow-faced, ill-favored little man who was to be my chief source of amusement and mental exercise for a long time to come, and to illustrate still further the inevitable triumph of the high intellect over all obstacles and surroundings. <coughs> so you're the great John Forsyth, eh? You've heard of me, then? Not off, I haven't. The luckiest beggar that ever cheated the hangman. Luck? There is no such thing as luck. Now? And how is it you'll sit near safe and sound? And how it is free as air in 15 or 20 years, instead of stretching your neck at the end of a rope, eh? I'm here because I choose to be here. That is all. Because you choose to be, eh? <laughs> <coughs> uh, now, now, tell me, Forsyth, just between us two... How did you do it? By using my brain. And there's many another tried that before and been caught up with. Simply because they did not really have any brains to start with. Now, it's luck, I tell you. Bad luck, like mine. <coughs> you want to hear the worst bit of luck ever ruined a man's life? Well, if you wish to call it that, why not? It was like what happened to you in a way. A sweetheart. Agnes, her name was. The biggest, bluest eyes. The prettiest little thing you'd ever hoped to see. And you'd killed her. Oh, I didn't mean to. It was the usual, you know, and I, I caught her dead to ride. But she laughed at me. That was the trouble. 
threw it in my face, she did. Next thing I knew, something snapped. And when me head cleared, there I was sitting on the floor beside her, crying like a baby. And her lying there with her pretty blue eyes just tearing out of her head and her pretty mouth all twisted. The red marks there on her throat. The marks of these two very ends where I'd strangled the life out of her. You weren't unlucky. You were stupid. You killed her without planning it. Well, and uh, what did you do with the body? Cemented her into the wall of the cellar. <laughs> and the bloke next door had a gas eater. Exploded and blew out the old ruddy wall between us, it did. By the time I got home, there was farming and bobbies all over the place. And there was Agnes, what was left of her, lying right out in the middle of the cellar floor for all the world to see. A truly intelligent man foresees every possibility and guards against it. Who could? Who could foresee a thing like that? I could. You could? I stand before you as the living proof of it. In 10 or 15 years, I shall be free because I'm intelligent. Whereas you will rot and die here because you are stupid. Oh, pretty clever, ain't you? Now, just about everything there is to know, don't you? <laughs> no, no, not everything. But quite a lot of things. <laughs> For instance, I know something about that cough of yours. What about it? The color of your skin, the look about your eyes, the way you breathe. I hope you're not afraid to die, Waters. Oh, rabbit. What are you talking about? Have you ever heard of retribution, Waters? What? Oh, the inevitable fate it pursues and at last destroys the criminal mind. A vengeance, you might call it. Ah, uh, what? You don't think anything's going to happen to you or me, do you? No, not to me, Waters. For the intelligent man foresees and prevents even that. But to you, Waters, most certainly to you. Oh, indeed. And who's going to do all of this? He is known by various names, Waters, but best known as the Angel of Death. <laughs> Retribution, the Angel of Death. Absurd, was it not? But a most purposeful absurdity. For the intellectual stimulus so necessary to remaining mentally alert during the prison years ahead was here delivered into my hands. An experiment. And one almost impossible under any other condition. And William Waters would be my guinea pig. An experiment to determine just how far a man might succeed through sheer superiority of intelligence. Breaking down and destroying the mind and the body of another. By the simple power of suggestion. I suggested nothing directly. Merely a word here, a glance there. Drops of water wearing away the stone. <laughs> i got a fever again tonight. Haven't I, John? No, no. A touch, perhaps, but that is all. The head peels up. <laughs> it's that blasting cough, what does it? Now, now, you mustn't worry about it. It's very bad for people with your condition to worry. What condition? What condition, John? Why, nothing. People with a with a cough like yours, people who feel, uh, well, uh, indisposed, that's all. Oh, What's that book you're reading, Mikey? Just a book, a 
A scientific book that I got from the prison library. What sort of a scientific book? General book on medicine. Things like that, you know. Let me see it. Oh, no, no. You wouldn't understand. Give it here. No, please. Give it back to me. You wouldn't be interested. Oh. You had it open at this place here, didn't you? This is what you've been reading, ain't it? Well, yes. uh, Among other things. Tuberculosis. Is that what I got, John? Tuberculosis? Oh, don't be silly. There's nothing seriously wrong with you. John, you've got to tell me. <laughs> I, I don't want to die. Ah, no, you're not going to die. You take care of yourself. Why should he come to me? I've always been healthy. I'm not old yet. Of course you are not. You're just imagining things. Imagining things? You're worrying too much, that's all. So what makes you think I'm worrying? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes when you're asleep, uh, uh, tell me, uh, do you ever have dreams? What sort of dreams? Oh, well, about the past or... Oh, oh you mean about, about her? Yes. Do you ever dream you see her lying there on the floor with her eyes bulging oh. out of her head and her mouth all twisted oh. and her tongue all black no, and swollen? John, don't stop it. And your fingers digging into her no. throat? Stop it! Stop it! Here, here, here. What's the matter here? Oh, he seems somewhat disturbed in his mind this evening, God. Oh, his mind, eh? Oh, that reminds me. Doctor said we was to try to prevail on him to get out of his bunk tomorrow and get outside, get a little exercise and fresh air. Oh? Uh, you tell him, eh? All right, yes. I will. What were you two muttering about? Oh, he was just telling me what the doctor said about you. Uh, what? Oh, he wants you to stay in your bunk. And get plenty of rest. The time was drawing near, I knew. The time for what I had planned as the culmination of my experiment. Waters was having periods of definite delirium. But I waited. I waited for them to become more pronounced. Then, one night... When I'd listened to him tossing and muttering for hours in his bunk, I crossed over in the darkness. Oh, no. Wait. It ain't time yet. I don't have to go yet. No. William Waters. I've come for you, William Waters. What? She sent me, William. She sent me with her eyes staring out of her head. The black, swollen town. No. I'm the angel of death. I'll kill you! I'll kill you! Take your hands into my throat! Take your hands into the dirt! I'll kill you! Let me quiet you. What's going on here? I have to hit him. The man is out of his mind. He thinks I'm, I'm some angel of death or something. Yeah, you. Come on. Up on your feet. Come on there, Waters. Nah. What's the matter with you? Buster, you, it's you what done this to me. I told you he was out of his mind. It's you what done it to me. I'll see it now. Come on now, you're coming with me. I'll kill you, fool, sir. Come on. I'll get out of here. Come on. Come on. I'll kill you. It was interesting while it lasted. 
and I've always believed that given a little more time, I could have ended my experiment successfully. But I had other plans to make now. Plans for the day when I would be free. And at last it came. At last I was walking away from the prison gate of free man. And now began my search. It was not difficult. It led me at last to Paris, to a small apartment, where I went tonight, December 31st, New Year's Eve. Yes? Good evening. Well, good evening, sir. Did you, uh, did you wish to see someone? Oh, you don't recognize me? <laughs> Why, I do, of course, but, um... Are you a friend of Pam's? I'm indeed. Who is it, darling? It's a friend of yours, dear. A friend of both of you. John. What? Yes, in fact, your husband, my dear, and Raymond's best friend. John, it's been... Fifteen years, yes. You only returned to Paris recently, did you not? Yes, a short time ago. And you never knew that I was convicted and sentenced to prison for your double murder, did you? Murder? Oh, that was quite as I planned it. I knew where you were, but the authorities did not. John. But perhaps you have heard of a curious legal technicality which provides that a man cannot be convicted twice for the same crime. You see, I've already paid for your murders. And now I've come to collect an ancient debt. Put on that gun. I then walked calmly from their rooms. I made no effort to hide my face, my trail, or my identity. I can now defy every element in life and in law. After 15 years, I've committed the crimes for which I've already paid my debt to society. I shall mail this letter to the police, who may give it to the newspapers, or whoever wants it. Although it is now a matter of indifference to me if the world remarks upon my cleverness or my patience. For my life is complete. No man has ever known such happiness. John Forsythe. <laughs> yes, yes, come in, Madame Leclerc. That's the letter now that I wished you to mail for me. I've come to you, John Forsyth. Waters. I'm not Waters any longer. How did you get out? They said I was insane. So I hadn't been responsible when I killed her. Then they said I was cured. Sane again. And then they let me out. But there was one thing they never knew. They never knew who I really was. What are you talking about? That's why I've come to you, John Forsyth. I am the chosen messenger of an higher power. Look here, Waters. I... Die, John Forsyth. I... And the story ends with a newspaper clipping. Let me read it to you. Paris, January 1st. This gay metropolis spent one of its quietest New Year's Eves in recent years. 
In all greater Paris, there were only two recorded deaths by violence, both of which, by a strange coincidence, occurred within a few yards of each other. The first was the fatal shooting by an unknown assailant of an Englishman, John Forsythe. The second victim, unidentified, had apparently leaped from a window or roof of the same dwelling occupied by Forsythe. Police were at a loss to explain a weird black silk robe and cape worn by the man. Jean-Vierre Leclerc, concierge of the building, alleges to have heard a voice repeating an English phrase, I am the angel of death, just before the suicidal leap. However, this can hardly have any bearing on the case, since the said phrase was undoubtedly uttered by New Year's revelers in the neighborhood. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. How much more pleasureful any meal becomes when Roma wine is served. Yes, a fine table wine such as Roma California Burgundy makes any food taste better, brings out all the flavors, lends romance and friendly companionship to the meal. America's famed hostess, Elsa Maxwell, says, My simple secret for gracious and enjoyable dining is to serve my guests Roma Burgundy. It's so easy to make your meals more delicious, more exciting, as Elsa Maxwell does. Because Roma wine costs so little, anyone can serve it often. Compliment your next dinner with the fruity fragrance and appetizing piquant taste of red, robust Roma Burgundy. Get Roma Burgundy tomorrow. Now selling at the lowest prices in years. And you get extra savings when you buy Roma in a half gallon and gallon size. No wine but Roma offers you so much for so little. Insist on Roma. R-O-M-A. Roma wine. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Paul Henry appeared through the courtesy of Warner Brothers Studios and will soon be seen in their production, Devotion. Next Thursday, same time, Roma Wines will bring you Mr. Phil Perry as star of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wine. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wine. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live, to your happiness in entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Yes, right now, a glass full would be very pleasant, as Roma Wines bring you Elliot Lewis in a remarkable tale of... Suspense. I suppose you want to know how it happened. Yes, I'd like very much to know. Then will you tell me how you got here? I'm Dr. Mayer. Did you look at her? Is she dead? You tell me your story first. Who's he? This gentleman lives in the next apartment. Yeah? Yes, go on, go on. Let's hear your story. Well, her name was... Is... Frances Murphy. I've known her for about six months. I met her at a party. We went out together a few times, liked each other, and started going together. 
she's fascinating, I guess. I fell in love with her, and I think she was in love with me for a while, anyway. What's your name? Uh, Michael Gordon. Yeah? Oh, go on. Well, she wasn't well for a while, and then she told me she had to go to the hospital. Some minor surgery. Minor surgery? Why, that girl... So that's what she told you, eh? Yeah. Well, anyway, I got sort of busy, and I didn't get a chance to see her while she was sick. And when I saw her again, she wouldn't talk to me, so I started seeing another girl I know. But this afternoon, I got to thinking about Fran. I kept seeing her when I was with the other girl. It bothered me. So I decided I'd come over and see her. I got here at 6 o'clock. This apartment, in case you don't know, it's very easy to get up to. The desk clerk sits around the corner from the elevator, and you don't have to see him if you don't want to. I didn't want him to call and tell Fran I was coming up, so I went over to the elevator without talking to him and came directly up to the fourth floor and knocked on her door. Hello, Fran. Oh, it's mine. How are you, Fran? Can I come in? What do you want? Oh, I was just passing by. I thought I'd stop in and see how you were feeling. You're a little late, aren't you? Feeling better for three weeks. Oh, that don't be like that, honey. I was busy. That's why I didn't see you. Aren't you going to ask me in? All right, come in. But you can't stay long. I've got an engagement with a very good friend tonight. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> oh, the apartment looks very nice. Sit down if you like. Oh, thanks. Uh, care for a cigarette? No, thanks. Ah, uh, you look swell. Not your fault, I do. Oh, now, don't be like that, Fran. I feel awful about not seeing him when you were sick. I had to see a fellow from out of town. Did it take you ten days to see him? Well, honey, you know how those things are. It was business. You just can't make any other plans. You really don't have to explain it to me. I'm not the least little bit interested in what you do. Fran, look at me. I'm sorry, Fran. I don't blame you for being mad at me. I'm no good, I guess. I'm just a no-good bum. I never deserved having a girl like you anyway. How true. But let's let bygones be bygones and at least part good friends, huh? That's really why I came by today. I wanted to ask you, can't we be friends? Well... Because I loved you, Fran. You know that I did. I still do. But, of course, I realize that's beside the point. You still do, huh? Whatever do you mean? I've been thinking about you a lot, Fran. About how you walk... The fingernail polish you use. The perfume you wear. You gave me for my birthday. Did I? Well, you know, that's right. I remember now. You sure were surprised. It's very nice of you. It was nothing, honey. Nothing at all. I wish I could have gotten you a mink coat. Two mink coats. One for afternoon, one for nighttime. Really? Mind if I sit here next to you? Well, I don't know. Thanks. You're in the perfume now, aren't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, perfume has a better smell when you wear it, you know? Oh, will you forgive me, Fran, for being such a heel? Well, you really didn't... No, don't answer that, honey. It wasn't nice of me to ask you that. There's no reason why a girl like you should get stuck with a bum like me. You're better off going out with other people. Who's this friend you had the engagement with tonight? Are you really sorry you didn't see me, Mike? I told you I was. I could have killed myself. I felt so bad. Give me a kiss. Sure, honey. 
I missed you, Mike. And I haven't got an engagement with anyone tonight. I haven't been out of the house. That's the man that I should take it easy. Oh, that's good, honey. We'll go out tonight, huh? Or would you rather I stayed here with you for dinner? And then we could listen to some music tonight. I haven't heard your records in a long time, you know. No, no, you'll have to go, Mike. I have some packing to do. I I have to go away and rest for a while. Guess I was pretty sick. Oh, it's all the more reason for me to stay, huh? I'll help you pack. We'll have a little farewell party. No, no, I'm sorry, Mike. I I have to go to sleep as soon as I finish packing, so I'll be fresh for the trip tomorrow. Oh, that's ridiculous. I'm just going to sit here. I won't bother you. Who are you trying to kid? What do you mean? I mean, what are you trying to pull? You got a date with another guy? Tell me. I don't care who you go out with. I told you I didn't have a date. Well, you think I believe that? Too sick to see me, huh? That's a laugh. You certainly look well enough to me. But I'm not. That's one of the reasons I didn't go to see you in the hospital. I knew you were chidden. What's the matter with you? I had an operation. You want to tell me about your operation? Please go. I'm going. I'm good and ready. You go right now. Right when I tell you to. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You get out of here before I call a manager. Oh, you wouldn't dare call a manager. Oh, wouldn't I? Listen, you cheap, no good bump. You get out of here, I'll have you thrown out. Oh, shut up. Okay. All right, you're out. Hey, give me that phone. Get your dirty hands off of me. You go away. I told you to shut up. What do you want? Why don't you leave me alone? I want to see you uncomfortable. I want you to be unhappy the way you make me unhappy. I want to make sure you remember me. <laughs> I used to fall for that crying routine, but not anymore. Now I just make you cry a little hard. You might like to know I wasn't seeing anybody about business while you were in the hospital. I went out every night. I've been seeing your friend Trudy. Trudy? Trudy. Yeah, Trudy. But then I had to come back up here today and see you. Because I kept seeing you and I kissed Trudy. What's that got to do with me? You get out of here. You gotta do something to stop that. I don't love you anymore, but I keep remembering you. That's no good. You can stop remembering me any time you like. Well, I hardly recognized you when you came in. That's how easy I forgot. Oh, no, that don't work with me. Now listen to me. You listen to me. I'm tired of your little problem. I don't like you, and I wouldn't even like you if you had any money, which goodness knows you haven't. I want you to go away and leave me alone. And I want you to come back here anymore. You saw me to David because you wanted to. Okay, but no more. I'm going into the bedroom and I'm going to lock the door and I don't care whether you stay here forever, but I'm not coming out until you leave here. But if you haven't left in a little while, I'm going to scream. And I'm going to keep screaming until somebody comes up here and throws you out of here. I just stood there for a while and looked at the door. And I thought, I don't love her. I don't love her at all. I hate her. That's when I decided to do it. Because I figured that if there was no Fran, that I could see Trudy or, or anybody else I wanted to and not have to worry about being lonesome for Fran or feeling sorry for Fran or needing Fran. And I figured, you don't remember dead people very well. But I knew I had to do it that night before she left on a trip. I worked it out like this. I'd leave right then and leave her front door on the latch and talk to everybody in the building. And go to my boarding house and tell everyone there how tired I was. And go up to my room. That would be my alibi. Everyone would have seen me go to sleep. Then I'd wait until everybody was in bed. And I'd take my gun and come back here without anybody seeing me. And kill Fran. For suspense... 
Roma Wines are bringing you Elliot Lewis as star of Can't We Be Friends, a radio play of which he is also the author, and which is Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Ken Niles for Roma Wine. Warm weather and cold drinks just naturally go together. And here's my favorite recipe for quick, thirst-quenching refreshment these scorching days. It's Roma Wine and Soda, America's smartest, coolest summer drink. After a hot day's work, try Roma Wine and Soda. It's refreshing as a cold shower. And when guests drop in, delight them with delicious, easy-to-serve Roma Wine and Soda. Just half-fill a tall glass with Roma California Burgundy or Sauterne or any other Roma wine type of your choice. Then add ice, fill with sparkling water, and stir. In less than a minute, you're sipping your way to cool contentment. Or for a short refresher that's long on taste, try this cooler offer. Just pour Roma California Sherry to cover a cube or two of ice. It's delicious. Remember, Roma wines are selected from the world's greatest wine reserves. So refreshers made with Roma are better tasting always. For low-cost, cool enjoyment this summer, serve Roma wine and soda. Insist on Roma. R-O-M-A. Roma wine. Largest selling wine in all history. And now, Roma wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage, Elliot Lewis as Michael Gordon in Can't We Be Friends? A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Fran? Hey, Fran? Well, I'm gone now. I'm sorry we couldn't at least be friends. I went to the front door of her apartment. I snapped the lock open and left, making a little noise, closing the door so she'd know I'd gone. In the elevator going down, I saw a guy I didn't know, but I wanted to be seen leaving, so... Uh, Bobby, do you have the time? Uh, uh, quarter, quarter to seven. Thanks. Uh, oh, I'm awful tired. You've been working on? Oh, yeah. Early jobs every morning. <laughs> Matter of fact, this is almost my bedtime. Uh. Uh. Oh, after you. Oh, thanks. All right. I'll see you. Huh? Mm -hmm. Uh, pardon me. Yes, may I help you? Uh, yeah, Miss Murphy in 411 asked me to tell you she doesn't want to be disturbed. Yes, yes, yes. You got that straight now. Miss Murphy, 411, she doesn't want to be disturbed. Not uh, feeling badly again, is she? Oh, no, no. No, just a little tired. Taking a nap. Oh, well, thank you. I see that she's not bothered. Yeah, because she doesn't want to be disturbed. I uh, got the time. Uh, take uh, ten minutes to seven. Ten minutes to seven. I better get my dinner and get some sleep. Got an early call in the morning. I left the building and took a cab, although I didn't have too much dough. I talked to the cabbie. I asked him about his family. I got real chummy with him. Because he was a Red Sox man, so I was a Red Sox man. At the boarding house, I gave everybody a big yawn. I lauded around how tired I was. I even had the landlady feeling sorry for me, and she usually hates me. Everybody patted me on the back up to my room. I made a lot of noise dropping my shoes when I got there. I jumped up and down on the bed a couple of times. Then I went over to the window. And I looked out at the street. And I waited. 
The traffic gradually disappeared as I watched. And through the early night, one by one, I could hear the other boarders yell goodnight to somebody in the living room and bang up the stairs and close their door. Pretty soon I knew they had to be asleep. About one o'clock in the morning, a last pair of footsteps came upstairs without saying goodnight to anyone. So I knew they'd all turned in. I waited a little longer to make sure everyone was sleeping. And I put my shoes back on. I got my gun out of the bureau drawer. I opened the door to my room. Old man Epstein was sawing away down the hall, making his usual racket, so I felt easier about going past his door to get to the stairs. But I was very careful and quiet. <coughs> it grumbled once when I got in front of his door, but I held still. Pretty soon he started sawing again. I got down the stairs. It was pretty dark in the living room, and I was afraid I'd trip on some furniture. But I made it all right. Finally felt the front door knob in my hand. I opened the door as quietly as I could. What? <laughs> and then what? I don't want to touch the woman that case. Go play with Lombardo. <laughs> you uh, rock me, Jason. You rock me. <laughs> what tomorrow? Dave, I got an 88 man I want you to hear. Oh, solid, solid. See you. Oh, that you, Whippy? No. Oh, hi, man. Good evening. Doors open if you're going in. Oh, thanks for saving me the key move, man. Hey, you still working days, fellow border Rooney? Yeah, yeah. Oh, ain't this a little past your bedtime, man? Oh, yeah, it's late, but the reason I... Hey, can... why do you go out at 3 old about? Well, I wasn't going out. I couldn't sleep. I was just going to get some fresh air and come right in again. You better leave the door unlocked for me. Oh, boy, I'm beat. Yeah, you better get to bed. Uh... Oh, it's a fine night for singing. Yeah. Uh, well, don't get too much of that fresh air. Liable to choke you to death. Yeah, well, good night. Oh, hey, hey, we had that joint really jumping tonight. Hatchet Face come by, sat in with us for a while. Really? Oh, he's mellow. That boy plays fine. So I hear. Yeah. That's good? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. <sighs> well, enjoy your company, Pops. Sure thing. I was frightened for a minute. I was awful frightened. If Jack remembered seeing me, my carefully planned alibi was shot. I thought, better not, not tonight. But then, Jack wasn't like most people. He wouldn't remember in the morning. He'd be too busy trying to recall Hatchet Face's lick. No, it was still all right. But I had to be careful. I couldn't take any chances. To be safe, I had to have the alibi that I'd gone to bed early. I walked quietly to the street and started for Fran's apartment house. I was very careful all the way. A couple of times cars came by and always I ducked into the shadows and waited for them to pass before I continued walking. I got here at about four o'clock, I guess. I went up to the front door and tried to open it. But the big door was locked. I couldn't get in. I took my keys out of my pocket and tried them. But none of them fit in. Then I heard someone coming up the walk. I moved back from the door and squeezed against the mailboxes and waited. I was almost afraid to breathe. Except that I knew I'd get in now. I'd just wait until the people went in and then get my foot in the door to keep it from completely closing again. Good night, honey. Good night, darling. I'll call you in the morning, Betty Jane. Call me when you get home so I know you're all right. Oh, 
Well, won't I wake anyone? Oh, I'll be at the phone. I'll, I'll answer as soon as it rings. Okay. Give me another kiss. Do you love me? Uh-huh. How much? A million. Oh, that's not enough. Good night. Good night, Betty Jane. Seven million? Mm, that's better. Don't forget to call. I won't. Honey. Yes, darling. Good night. Uh-huh. Good night, darling. You call now. I will. I was sweating. It had been close, but they hadn't seen me, and my foot was holding the door open, so I just waited there until I was sure she'd gone upstairs. And then I opened the door and quietly guided it closed and walked on tiptoe across the lobby to the elevator. I needn't have wondered about avoiding the desk clerk. There was no one at the desk. The elevator was upstairs somewhere where the girl had just taken it, and I rang the buzzer for it. I love self-service elevators. They make you feel like you could go to the moon in them. Elevators and subway trains I always wanted to drive ever since I was a kid. I got back in the dark just in time. The guy didn't see me. For a few seconds, how that guy'd been able to whistle, you know, the way you do. I opened the elevator door and got in. I pushed the button for the fourth floor. I got a little panicky because I thought that if someone was waiting on the fourth floor, they'd see me when they opened the elevator door. I almost convinced myself that someone would be there waiting for me. I put my hand in my coat pocket and felt the gun there and grabbed it hard. It was cold, so I took it out and pressed it against my forehead. That made me feel a little better. There was no one waiting for the elevator. I stepped out into the dark hallway. I took a pencil out of my pocket and jammed it against the door so that it couldn't close. You know the way those things are. They won't run when the door is open, and I wanted it to be there waiting for me when I finished the shooting. That was the only way I figured to get out of the apartment before everybody woke up and started doing something about hunting for me. There's a basement exit, you know. When the elevator goes down in the basement, I had all that figured, too. The pencil seemed to work, but to make sure, I stepped back into the elevator and pushed the button. The motor clicked and the door strained, but stayed open. The elevator didn't go anywhere. Then I stepped out into the hall and listened. It was awful quiet. Not even anyone snoring, which you usually hear at night in a big apartment house like this. I tried to remember if there was a squeaky board on the floor anywhere down the hall, but couldn't, so I just crossed my fingers and tiptoed down the long, dark hallway. The only light was the red exit sign that shows you where the fire escape is. And seeing from that is like working in a dark room, developing pictures, which I did for a while. Two doors from Fran's apartment. That's the most frightened I ever was in my life. When a kid started to yell. Because in the first place, I didn't know what it was right away. In the second place, I thought to wake up everybody in the apartment and they'll be up and on their feet when I start shooting. I guess I held my breath for a couple of minutes because when I started to try and relax, my breath came out in a low whistle. That scared me too. I thought 
It'd be great if I get a heart attack right here in the hall of a strange apartment house in the little hours of the morning with a gun in my pocket. It's like being afraid of a fire at night because you don't want to go out in the street in your pajamas. <laughs> it's worse, I guess. Anyhow, the baby finally quieted down. I waited a while. Because I didn't know whether his mother had gotten up to quiet him or whether he'd just gone back to sleep again. I wasn't taking any chances now. It was too close to the finish. I waited. I figured it was safe a few minutes later and continued snailing down the hall. I stopped at Fran's door and listened. It was quiet inside. I put my hand into my pocket and grabbed hold of the gun. Then I slowly turned the doorknob, slid the door open. It didn't creak or anything, which was lucky. I got into the room, quietly closed the door again. I took the gun out of my pocket and released the safety and went to the bedroom door. It was already a little bit open. Through the crack, I could see her figure lying on the bed. I pushed the door enough ajar so that I could move into the room and look closer. That chop suey sign across the street was flashing on and off, and as I got used to the pattern it made on the wall, I saw Frances lying on the bed, dressed as she had been when I'd seen her early in the evening. She was lying on her stomach with her face turned toward the far side of the room toward the shadow. My nose started to tickle. I thought I was going to sneeze, but when I pressed the cold gun against my upper lip, the desire left me. I moved slowly and quietly toward the bed. I got in a few feet of her. I pointed the gun right at her head. The gun was weaving around, so I held on with both hands. I took very careful aim. I threw the gun down on the bed right next to Fran and started for the door. I knew I didn't have much time to get out of there. I tripped over one of her packed suitcases in the living room but didn't fall. It reminded me that I'd gotten there in time. She hadn't had a chance to go on her trip. I got to the front door of the apartment and jerked it open. Too much to hurry. Get back in there. Get out of my way. Get back in there. I told you to get back in That's all I know what happened. I see. Did you hit me? Yes. I was helped by this gentleman here. I used that book. What are you doing here? The young lady had called me and asked me to stop by. At four o'clock in the morning? Oh, look here. I'm her doctor. Yeah? You must have got pretty clubby with her while she was in the hospital. Hmm? I was right about her. That's swell. Now, I don't feel badly about having shot her. The police will be here soon. You think I'm going to wait for her? Jim You gonna call the ambulance? I already had. Yeah. You, you I already... called the ambulance for the young lady. The state she was in when she talked to me on the phone, I I knew we'd have to take her back to the hospital tonight. Well, there's not much they can do for her now. Well, there wasn't much they could have done for her before. An embolism, a uh, blood clot. Result of her surgery and the excitement she must have had earlier in the evening. Then he didn't kill her? She was dead. Three hours before he got here. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wine. R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world.
Well, both these stories had their shining moments. The just desserts received by the murderer, whose insane level of patience led to a reward he'd been waiting for, only for it to be snatched away by another madman, his own life taken by someone he manipulated. Goes to show how careful you have to be when getting under the skin of strangers, not to mention the sheer delight he took in patronizing, torturing, and manipulating the man with mental illness. Ah, <sighs> goodness. Some would say he got his just desserts. And being put away for a suspected murder. Guilty until proven innocent, so it seems. Yikes. If any of you listeners out there know something about this, chime in. I'm keen to hear your thoughts. And our second tale about a boyfriend who was bent on torturing his girlfriend to only have lost her before he even had the chance to kill her himself. The chances of that taking place is astronomical, but also makes a killer story. Here are some choice observations I made whilst listening to these OTRs. Perfume has a better smell when you wear it. You cheatin' bum has to be the best insult ever. <laughs> Listening to music is equivalent to Netflix back then. And lastly, the lines, Oogledoo Rit has to be my favorite scat jam I've ever heard in a long while. <laughs> oh, and how much do you love me? A million? Nah. Seven million is clearly the exact amount of real love she deserves. <laughs> oh, I love OTRs. <laughs> but going back to Can't We Be Friends, how do you trial a situation like this? He didn't technically kill her, despite the fact that he wanted to. What do you put him away for? Either way, I really liked both narratives here, where the killers are tricked on their escapade for revenge, planned or fueled by passion to such terrible ends. Well, listeners, I hope you had a kick-ass weekend and a lovely Monday. And this Wednesday, I'm going to do some more Earl Grey Enforcer stories, so stick with me then because they're always a lot of fun and unique. Just like my white tea warlords, Matthew J. Bauer, Maya, and Divided by Zero. Thank you so much for your support. And of course, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, and Peter Raffaelli. And yes, all of you keep the lights on and the blood pumping. Thank you so much for your support. And stay brilliant, you lovely listeners, which isn't hard for you lot. And as always, till next, we meet.